Good morning. I, t I told the 8 o'clock service that I, standing in front of you reminds me of something that happened in my life. Uh, Hal Farnsworth, who was my campus minister when I was an undergrad at Mississippi State, the first time he met my then girlfriend, who's now my wife, Dana, the very, very first time he laid eyes on her and met her, and he's very extroverted, he said, Dana, I love you. And he said, I love you because you love my man. That's how he started off with Dana, was I love you. And I, I kind of feel that about you. I, um, I've never worshipped at Redeemer before, but I've known about you for a while. I've prayed for you. I love Albert. Uh, I love Jackson. And I'm not in it day after day, but I, I want to be one of those people that's counted as those who love Jackson. Not everybody loves Jackson. But thank you for loving Jackson day in and day out as the body of Christ. Um, thank you, Elbert, and thank you to the session of Redeemer for allowing me to be here this morning. It's a real privilege. I've got friends and family and others I know looking around, so it's just really it's great to be here. The house is more full than it was at 8 o'clock, and it's just kind of hit me that I'm completely surrounded uh, <laughs> on every side, so there's no getting out. I guess I've got to preach this whole thing, but... I want to ask you to turn, <clears throat> excuse me, to Acts chapter 10. And I always feel a little bit at a disadvantage when I'm with a group that I haven't been with and we just sort of plop into a, a text. So just to get us all on the same page, the book of Acts is, is really this bridge between the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the beginning of the New Testament, the, the person and work of Christ and uh, the earthly ministry of Christ. And then how did this gospel spread all over the world? You know, if all you had were the four gospels and then these letters to these different random churches, it would be really hard to understand how this all fits together. But Acts is the account of the risen Christ sending out the apostles and other believers all over the earth to the ends of the earth to spread the good news. So that's the book we're in, Acts chapter 10. And... And before I read this, I, I do want you to think about something from the Gospels. This is from the Gospel of John. And John records something that Jesus prayed right before he's arrested, taken into custody and then, and then crucified the next day. And, and sometimes it's called the high priestly prayer. It's in John chapter 17. But apparently the Apostle John heard what Jesus prayed. And one of the things he prayed, and I mean, and this is right at the edge. He is about to be arrested and just go through brutality and be tortured and murdered. So just praying out of, the, out of the fullness of his heart. And one of the things he prays very pointedly is, Father, other people are going to believe through, through my servants, through my people, through these men. Make them one. Make them one. One of the main things that Jesus prays right at the end is all the people who one day believe in me, Father, make them one. So I, I want that in your ears before I read this passage because I want to ask you this question. Just, this is tortured grammar, I know, but like just how one does he want us to be? Right, Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, that would be 3 p.m., he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, 
Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. For I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason uh, for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you, to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited the men to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a few weeks ago, I stumbled on a a food blog, a blog about eating and food formation and all that. And uh, I I was intrigued by something that this blogger wrote. And this this writer picked up on something in a Beyonce song and wrote about it. And it's from the song Formation, which which I will not quote in full from the pulpit right now. (laughs) But there's a line that's said several times in the song. And the, the line is, I got hot sauce in a bag. That's right. That's right. Let's close in prayer. Thank you. (laughs) But this writer writes, if I can get you back. Uh, There's another much uglier reason that carrying your own condiments became a major part of black American culture. While Jim Crow laws, extensively documented in print and historical record, are fairly well known, less well known are the unspoken etiquette rules for black people, largely forgotten by anyone who didn't have to live under them. 
During Jim Crow, black people could pick up food at establishments that served white people, but they often could not eat in them. When custom demanded that black people be served separately from whites, they were often required to have their own utensils, serving dishes, and condiments. So it was customary for black families who were traveling to carry everything they might possibly need so that they could navigate America in relative comfort. I didn't know that. Um, a friend of our family is a man from around Yazoo City, Mississippi, 80 years plus, that was at the 8 o'clock service, came because I was preaching here. He knew it from his experience. But what this gets at is the, is the crazy illogic of segregation in the Jim Crow era. You know, uh, black hands can prepare the food. Black hands can bring the food. Black hands can take the food away the owner of those hands may not eat with the person being served. Uh, black hands can raise your child. This person can spend more time with a child than the parent spends with the child, but the children can't spend time together. And that's not something unique to American culture. It's definitely not something unique to Southern culture. Uh, th th it's just part and parcel of something you find across the centuries, across geography, across cultures. And I want to think about food in particular. Across geographic lines, across cultural lines, food can unite and food can divide. What you've got in this text is the outworking of Jesus' prayer. Now, I know I said it before, but let me say it again. Jesus prayed to His Father and ours. Father, I want them to be one. How one? And he actually says so in the prayer, and this is an, the theology of this is amazing. He says, Father, I want them to be one between each other the way you and I are one. The way that God the Father and God the Son are one is to be the metric for how God's people are one. That's very one. <laughs> Eating can foster that. Eating can undermine that. But the Lord Jesus Christ wants us to be one. And so what I want to talk about this morning is just two points, so take heart. Just two points. <laughs> oneness is concrete and oneness is hard. Oneness is concrete, tangible, and oneness is hard. Let's, oneness is concrete. Let's go back to the context. You know, at the beginning of Acts, as I said, the risen Jesus Christ, this is after His crucifixion and resurrection, He says... To his disciples, you're, you're going to stay here in town. You're going to stay here in Jerusalem until the Spirit's poured out. When the Spirit is poured out, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, where they're standing, and Judea, the area, Samaria, the neighboring area, and then to the end of the earth. So in other words, start here when the Spirit is poured out, work out to the end of the earth. So by this point in the book of Acts, this is Acts chapter 10, already you've seen the gospel going in places that it hasn't gone before. In fact, you've already seen non-Jewish people come to believe in the Messiah. Now, we're used to that. This is a room with a lot of Gentiles in it. They weren't used to that. But Gentiles, different countries, different ethnicities, people who are not descended from Abraham, they're believing in Jesus as the Savior and as the Messiah. So that's already going on. Well, then you get this man, Cornelius. Cornelius is a centurion, and it's interesting. Those are Roman officers. They would head up a hundred men. And centurions in the New Testament, 
usually very positively presented, solid men. And he's a God-fearer. Now, you may or may not know what that term means, but I want you to know this because you'll see it in Acts and other places. It's kind of a separate category of person. You had the Jew, somebody who's actually, their genealogy comes from Abraham. They are ethnically descended from the 12 tribes. Then you had what were called proselytes. They had become Jews, but they were ethnically Gentile. They came to believe in the one true God. A man would be circumcised. They were, they were converted to Judaism. But there was a third category. And it's what was known as a God-fearer. And a God-fearer was somebody who was, again, Gentile, but stopped believing in all the other gods, believed in the one true God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but had not yet fully become a Jew. If a man had not yet been circumcised, that's Cornelius. He's a God-fearer. Gives to the Lord... Praise to the Lord. He's told by an angel, you need to summon this man named Simon, Simon Peter. And he's at the house of another Simon. Simon was, and this is, I'm not making a joke, was the most common name of that era. So Simon Peter is staying at the home of Simon the Tanner. You need to summon him and then listen to what he has to say. So that's kind of scene one. All right, scene two is you've got Peter staying at the home of Simon the Tanner. And at noon, he's up on the roof. People went up on the roof, did different things. This would be uh, noon in his time. Caesarea is on the sea. It says it's a house by the sea. So maybe he went up there to, to pray, catch the sea breezes. And as he's praying, he has a vision. And the vision, it's not just the appearance of a, of a giant sheet, but it's a sheet let down by the four corners from heaven. So this thing is coming from heaven. And it's got every kind of animal on it, everything from birds to cattle to snakes and crocodiles. And so he sees it and he hears God's voice. And God says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, no. And just a suggestion, if you ever hear God audibly speak, I would just go with, yes, sir. <laughs> just, and it's interesting because this is at least the third time he has done this in the New Testament. You know, the Son of Man must go and suffer. No, he, no, he doesn't. I'm going to wash your feet. No, you can't. Just go with yes, sir. And by the, just for no extra charge, I think the reason that you find that in the New Testament is you'd never write a hero story that way. That's just little fingerprints that these are accounts of how it really happened. The heroes are making big mistakes. But this time he says, rise, kill and eat. Peter says, no, that went against everything he had grown up with. And it went against everything that he saw in, in the Torah, what he saw in the Old Testament law about the Jewish food laws. But God says this, Look, don't call common what I have made clean. And then he does it again. And then he does it again. So in no uncertain terms, what is God saying to him? The old food laws are gone. Why is that important? What's the meaning of the vision? Well, you know, just out of curiosity, I did a Google search, and uh, I just searched for this phrase, one spouse vegan, one not, <laughs> just to kind of see what would happen. And man, articles, blogs, comment boards, and you had people talk. Basically, what I saw were two things. One was how one spouse, and by the way, if, if that's you, Elbert did not tell me about you. This is just, this is random. They would give an account of like one spouse, vegan, one not, how it affected their togetherness. 
that this one was doing their special food prep and I'm over here doing my kind of food prep and just the fact that those aren't in sync with each other, that it's harder for us just to sit down at the same time and be together. It affected togetherness. And the other thing, though, it affects is the attitude toward the other person. Because if you've got one vegan and one non-vegan sitting across from each other, probably both of them at the same time are going, wow, you made the wrong choice. <laughs> it, which, which implicitly means what? I made the right choice, which is sort of self-congratulatory. And this isn't being anti-Semitic, but this, this resonates with the Scriptures. This resonates with what historians say. If your whole life, you had been so careful about those food laws. And those food laws weren't just what you eat. It's even like what hands have touched the food, what hands have touched the utensils, what kind of utensils. I mean, it's rigorous. If you had grown up with that and been so careful every meal, and then you were sitting across from a Gentile who grew up Gentile and didn't eat that way and wasn't careful and ate anything, and they came to believe in Jesus... But you had always eaten that way. Wouldn't you feel a little bit better than that person? And wouldn't it be hard for you to be together at mealtime if you ate your way and he or she ate their way? And what is God saying? Stop doing that. Food is either going to connect you or food is going to divide you. And I don't want food to divide you anymore. I want oneness around the table. If you eat together, then in a concrete way, you're really being one. But oneness is hard. How do you see that in the passage? Look back at verse 6. And you may not have even noticed this. This is actually encouraging. It says that Peter is lodging with one Simon. Again, they've got this, go by the same name, Simon. But this Simon, the host is a tanner whose house is by the sea. So what's his vocation? He works with leathers, animal skins. Now already, that's kind of encouraging about what's going on with Peter because if you grew up with a Jewish mindset, especially if you grew up with the Jewish food laws, you wouldn't want to stay with a tanner because you'd be wondering, all right, is he taking those hands that do all that animal stuff and cut animals up and do who, who knows what? Is he going to then handle my food or handle me and make me impure? So the fact that Peter's staying with him, that's already a step in the right direction. He's praying at midday, sees the vision on the roof, and God says to him in no uncertain terms, don't call common what I have made clean. All these animals are clean. This sheet contains what the rest of the world eats, Peter. It's all clean. And then he goes downstairs, and right when that happens, here come these men from Cornelius. Now, I didn't read this part, but if you keep reading Acts chapter 10, it says that Peter goes with them, goes to the home of Cornelius. Cornelius says, okay, we're all ready to hear whatever it is that you have to say to us. So Cornelius tells them the gospel. And what happens? They become Christians. They believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says in Acts that when they do, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And they speak in tongues. And man, this passage, trances and visions and angels and tongues, it's got it all. But get used to the fact that the Bible is riddled with the supernatural. The Spirit is poured out and they speak in tongues. I don't think that's normative for the Christian life, but this is such a big deal 
that Gentiles are just as much in as Jewish believers, that God makes it visible, public, they're in, and they're baptized. And then later in the book of Acts, when people challenge that, Peter stands up and says, look, I was there, God has made them clean, they're just as much in the kingdom as we are. So you think, all right, well, that's a slam dunk. Peter got it, right? Let me read you a second passage from the New Testament. This is from Paul's letter to the Galatians. And he's going to refer to something Peter did. He, he calls him by another name. He calls him Cephas, but he's talking about the same Peter. Galatians 2, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the circumcision party were ethnically Jewish believers in Jesus who said, yeah, you're right, Jesus is the Messiah. You've got to believe in Jesus and you must be circumcised. They said, believe and just do one more thing. That infuriated Paul. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter, along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. May I read that again? When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, before them all If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, I don't know if you've ever heard that passage before, but if you're sitting here and you're hearing that for the first time and you're thinking, did an apostle just rebuke an apostle? Yes. And I want you to catch what he rebuked him for. He didn't rebuke him for his teaching. Paul rebuked Peter for his eating. That God had removed the barriers and you had connected over food with your Gentile brothers and sisters. And then you reverted to this old behavior. Do you understand what that means? That means that when these old friends showed up, that just their presence and their peer pressure was louder than God's voice to him. Do you understand that we're all like that? Every Christian is like that. Have you ever heard of John Newton? Wrote Amazing Grace? And John Newton was a wonderful man. A guy that I'm doing counseling with back in Greenville, I, I, I photocopied a letter by John Newton and gave it to him. And he, he emailed me that day and said, I've read that thing and reread that thing. It ministered to me. John Newton was a wonderful man. Do you know what his vocation was when he became a Christian? He worked in the slave trade. So when he became a Christian, he stopped that immediately, right? Here's what he says in his autobiography. The reader may perhaps wonder, as I now do myself, that knowing the state of this vile traffic, I did not at the time recoil with horror at my own employment as an agent promoting it. And then get this next sentence. He says, custom, example, and interest had blinded my eyes. There's so much in that sentence. Like, it just was customary to me to live in a world where there's slaves and there's slave ships and there's slave trade. It was just the reality. I was just customary to live in that world. And I'd seen the example of 
men that loved Jesus, churchgoers, they were okay with it. And so I just was blinded to how utterly out of accord this was with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Later God opened His eyes, but custom and example blinded me. Do you understand that custom and example blind all of us? And if you've never heard God's audible voice or seen a vision, God speaks to us in His Word. Now, let's think about it again in very concrete ways. If you've heard God's Word over and over and over and over say that the church is the people of God, is this building the church? Is this building the church? No. You're the church. And if you're gathered here for stated worship, you're being the church. When you go to your homes, when two or three of you gather together, when you have a small group, is that the church? Yes. You think about how real this can be. For some of you growing up in the Bible Belt, in Mississippi, maybe what having a church family feels like to you is we come together here, we do this, we have church, and then we... Hang on till next time we have church. Now, y'all call them growth groups, right? We call them community groups at Downtown Press. It may be to you that even though you hear God saying clearly, where my people are, that's the church. It's hard for you to do something like go over to someone's house who's not like you. It may be daunting because they have more than you. It may be daunting because they have less than you. It may be daunting because their friends are not the people that you grew up around. It doesn't feel like church. I really want to exhort you to be in each other's homes. Whether it's through something structured like growth groups or just coming together for meals. Because to to just really make this concrete, when two of you, and I'm thinking particularly of either members or regular attenders, when two of you who both believe in Jesus Christ, who didn't grow up around each other and don't have the same friends, don't listen to the same music, and maybe don't like the same food, when you sit down, and especially when you let the other person set the terms for where you eat and what you eat, that is the kingdom of God coming to Jackson. That is oneness in Christ Not as an abstraction, but real and tangible and in our midst. It's hard. You know, I I left, uh, I left, I'm just going to tell you this, just make this a level playing field. The Holy Spirit has been nudging me about a woman that lives down the street from us. She's somewhat mentally disabled, but she's able to take care of herself and she just lives in chaos and I keep feeling the nudge, have her over. And we have confession every week during our, our worship service. And it came to mind Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. So I finally wrote her a note and took it down to her. And she didn't respond. And I kind of thought, It's kind of like getting credit for repenting without actually having to repent. And <laughs> sort of like when you invite somebody over and you know they can't come over to your house, but you invite them so you get credit for hosp- hospitality without having to be hospitable. Not that you've ever done that, but while I've been in Jackson, I got a voicemail from her. She said, I can come. It's hard. 
I want things to be easy. I don't want it to be awkward. None of my friends know her and she doesn't know my friends. So I want to end on this note. What, what is the great eating gap that had to be overcome in history? What is the greatest eating gap that ever had to be overcome? Is it Jew and Gentile? And that one was tough. To say to Peter, eat those reptiles, ugh. I showed my son pickled uh, pig's lips in a store yesterday and we thought, whew, that's something. For Peter to eat reptile was way more to overcome than that. Is that the great food divide? Is the great food divide uh, black and white? The great food divide was God and man. That God is love. And He wants to not just cleanse us, but He wants to be with us. Why? And God is just. So He can't just let us come to Him as we are. He sends His Son to take all our sins on Him and His justice to fall on Him so that His love, can, His love and mercy can flow to us. This table that we're about to come to is not an abstraction. This is a depiction of the great eating gap of history that was breached by Jesus Christ. Jesus speaks to men the night they're about to betray Him and run away from Him when He's invested in them, blood, sweat, and tears for three years. And He says what? I've longed to eat with you. Now that's what God is like. He who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. I, I, I've longed to eat with you. What we're about to do is not just tradition. We're going to come together as brothers and sisters of all different kinds. And we're going to commune with one another. Our communion is horizontal, but our communion is vertical. Jesus is physically at the right hand of God the Father. But do you believe that spiritually He is with us at this table? As we eat and drink by faith. See, the, we give to others what we think we've received from God. God breached the gap to eat with me through His Son. That's what we have in our hearts for people like us, for people at Redeemer, to come together from very different backgrounds and sit around the same table in Jackson and show that the kingdom of God is real. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that You would overcome the barriers inside of us that keep us from eating with brothers and sisters who aren't like us, even in our own church family. Father, the barriers are not from You. They're from us. And custom and example have blinded us. So have mercy on us. Even as we eat together at this table, would you bring us toward one another around tables? Father, would you cause your kingdom to come to this city? That Jesus Christ would be lifted up? We ask this in his name. Amen.